Turn with me this morning to John chapter 4, the four, fourth of the four Gospels there at the beginning of a, the New Testament portion of your Bible, John chapter 4, in your workbook on page 6. You do have to learn to multitask at a Life Action Conference. You've got your Bible in one hand, your workbook, your pen there. Again, why do we refer to this as a thirst conference? We're going to trace a theme through both the Old and New Testament. It's a very prominent theme in Scripture. This picture that compares our body's physical dependence on water with our soul, our spirit's dependence on the life of God. So let's just think for a moment about water and our physical dependence on water. We understand that about 65% of the human body is made of water. At this instant, water is flowing through your blood. It's carrying oxygen and nutrients to cells and flushing the wastes out. It's water right now that's cushioning our joints and soft tissues. That lunch you're going to enjoy in just a few moments, you couldn't digest it or absorb the food without the aid of water. Dehydration, which of course we understand is a lack of water. Dehydration generally results in fatigue, delirium, unconsciousness, and in extreme situations, even death. You can make it about 40 days without eating, but you can make little more than four days without water. That's a picture again of how dependent our bodies are on water. Think with me about that sensation of thirst, a time that you have been truly, desperately thirsty. That sensation of thirst is so strong, it tends to overwhelm all the other sensations. We can't really think or concentrate on anything else but thirst and quenching our thirst. A father was putting his preschool son to bed. Now, they had their nightly ritual. It began in the bathroom. Uh, he'd go to the potty, and then they'd come, and he'd brush his teeth, and he'd get his drink of water. And the father would take him, tuck him into bed, kiss him goodnight, pray for him. So the father was back down into his bedroom, crawling into bed, and he heard a little voice from down the hall. Hey, Dad, I'm still thirsty. I want another drink. To which he responded, now, son, we're not going to continue to do this every night. You know the rule. You get one drink of water, you've had your drink, it's time to go to sleep. A few moments later, that little voice from down the hall, but dad, tonight I'm really, really thirsty. Now, son, we're not going to continue to do this. As a matter of fact, if you don't be quiet and I have to come down there again, well, there are going to be some very unpleasant consequences. A moment or two later, that little voice, hey, dad, when you come down here with my unpleasant consequences, would you bring me a glass of water? <laughs> Again, that strong, strong sensation of thirst. Now, each of my messages begins with what I call a thirst truth. You're going to know exactly where we're going in that message. Brent did a great job of laying the foundation for this in the first service. We're going to build on that foundation. Our thirst truth this morning, God created you with a spiritual thirst that only he can satisfy. God created you by God's design. You have this spiritual thirst for him, a thirst that he and he alone can satisfy. And let's begin to trace that 
theme of thirst through some scripture. Now, you're going to learn, I love to hear God's word, uh, uh, God's people read God's word out loud. And the screens make it easy. So let's just read this one together out loud off the screen. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Notice again the comparison there. Lord, I'm living right now spiritually in a dry and weary land. God, I'm thirsting for you. I'm longing for you. This would actually be reality for someone in the room right now. If you were to describe your spiritual condition right now, you could use these very words, Greg. I'm in a dry place. We've heard folks say that before. You may would say that yourself. I'm in a dry place spiritually right now. Jesus follows that same theme in the Sermon on the Mount, those great beatitudes that he begins with. Let's read this one off the screen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Both a condition and a promise. The condition. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be right in our relationship with God and to live right in our relationship with others, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, the promise, satisfaction. See, that's what God's desire is. He wants us to be satisfied, not frustrated, but satisfied. And finally from Acts 3, read this one with me. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You say, Greg, what's all this about this thirst conference? Four days. What is all this about? And the answer is simply, we've come together, joining our hearts with yours to seek the Lord that we might experience times of refreshing from his presence. And again, that really speaks to someone in the room. That one who would confess, I am spiritually dry right now. What you need is a time of refreshing. What we call a holy pause. Putting everything on pause for just a few days. To seek the Lord with intentionality and with passion. Believing that God desires that we would be spiritually refreshed. All right, you're with me there in John chapter 4. A familiar story for many in the room. The story of Jesus' encounter with that nameless woman at the well. Now, let me set up the text before we jump into it. Let me set it up with a quick geography lesson, all right? Ancient Israel, there were two population centers. In the north, around that freshwater lake, we call it the Sea of Galilee, or Lake Gennesaret today. And then in the south, the population center around the city of Jerusalem. Jesus' ministry would flow back and forth. He would minister in the north and then go to Jerusalem in the south. He had just finished ministry in the south. It was time to go back north. Now, normally what Jews did was they took a huge detour out of the way to go north to avoid the nation-state of Samaria that lay in between. We'll talk about why they made that detour in just a moment. Jesus, in following the will of his father is prompted to travel right through the middle of that nation-state of Samaria. He and his disciples stop outside of a village called Sychar. They stop at a well. He sends his disciples into town to get food while 
he waits. Now, what's he waiting for? He has a sense from his father that there is a divine appointment ahead. What do you mean by a divine appointment? God's providence, God's arranging circumstances that we would have a special encounter with him. And let me just say in passing, this very conference may be a divine appointment for you or a member of your family. Well, we see a very common sight in the ancient world, the picture of a woman coming to the well to draw water. And by the way, it's still a common sight in many areas of the world. Ladies, I'm sad to admit that the back-breaking responsibility of hauling water home has for millennia fallen on the backs of women. But you know, women tend to make the best of things. So typically, the women would come early in the morning, the cool of the day. They'd need water for baking, for cleansing. They'd need water for washing their clothes. So they come early to haul water back home. They would come as a group, both for security, protection, but also they would have a chance to socialize, to catch up on the latest gossip there in the village. But John paints a very different picture for us. A woman comes to draw water, not early in the morning, but by John's accounting about noonday, uh, noontime. And she doesn't come with a group. She comes by herself, and we'll find out in just a moment why that is. Well, let's listen in on their conversation. John chapter 4, starting at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and what it is that is, uh, who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, he would have given you living water. Uh, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Now pause a moment. When Jesus initiates a conversation asking simply for a drink, she is surprised. How is it that you, a man, are speaking to me, a Samaritan woman? See, Jesus was breaking all kinds of ancient taboos. Number one, Jewish men didn't speak publicly with women, not even their wives. But number two, the Jews and Samaritans, well, they had a little feud. It goes back about 700 years there had been Jews living in this part of uh, ancient Israel, but then it was conquered by a neighboring nation, and those uh, Gentiles intermarried with the Jews, and in the eyes of the, the pure Jews, they had polluted their race. So the Samaritans were largely despised by the Jewish people. But here we have a picture. The shepherd is looking for the lost sheep. Jesus is not about walls. He's about breaking walls and building bridges and so she expresses her surprise he, he then turns it around and says by the way if you actually knew who you were talking to you'd be asking me for water you'd be asking me for something to drink and then she says sir where where do you get that living water now that's a play on words see the ancients used the phrase living water to describe a source of fresh water a spring or an artesian well she's thinking in her mind you know of another source of water than this well 
Archaeologists tell us that that well was about two miles from the village. So that meant every day, at least once, she had a four-mile round trip. Hey, you know of a different water source. Where, where do you find that living water? Now, it's interesting. What we have here is a disconnect. See, she's fixated on the physical. For her, it's just another day, an ordinary day like any other day, believing if she can just get her physical needs met, she's going to be at least somewhat satisfied. And Jesus is talking on a different plane. She's on the physical. He's on the spiritual. She's fixated on the natural. He wants to introduce her to a supernatural quality of life. You see the same disconnect in the previous chapter, John 3. Remember that conversation, Jesus and the religious leader named Nicodemus? And Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And what was Nicodemus' response with a puzzled look on his face? How can a man go back into his mother's womb? Again, he's fixated on the physical. Jesus says, oh, no, you must be born from above. You must be born by the Spirit. And again, let me just make the observation. Someone in the room is also trying to find satisfaction, true, lasting satisfaction, the kind of satisfaction that God wants you to have, but you're trying to find it from a physical reality. Believing if your physical and your emotional needs are just met here and now, that will bring lasting satisfaction, but it keeps you all the more empty and frustrated. Let's move down to verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Pause again. Jesus is now developing this idea of living water. I have a gift for you, living water. Well, what is living water? It is eternal life. Now, that's a favorite term of the author, the Apostle John. He speaks frequently of eternal life in both his gospel and in the letters that we find towards the end of the New Testament. So let's take a moment and let's just think about that phrase, eternal life. When God is offering us eternal life, what exactly is he offering us? Now, the typical response is, well, we get to live forever. Eternal life means life without end. I just go on living and living in the presence of God. And I would say to you, you are partially correct. Yes, eternal life is life without end, but there's more to it. It's more than just a quantity of life. The phrase eternal life is also describing a quality of life, a quality of life. Listen to how Jesus describes it in John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it what, class? Abundantly. Eternal life is a quality of life, a quality of life that Jesus describes here as abundant life. So what's abundant life? What's eternal life or what we sometimes describe as the revived life? It's a new sense of intimacy with God, closeness and fellowship with God, a new sense of his presence and power at work in our lives. 
It's a life of fruitfulness. Both the character of Christ on display, that fruit of the Spirit, but also good works that are impacting others for many with eternal consequences. The life that Jesus describes is a life of victory. Victory over sinful actions and attitudes, those sin habits that beset us, that again keep us from putting the life of Christ clearly on display for others. Eternal life, this quality of life includes healthy relationships in the home, in our church, and even with those outside the faith. Now here's the reality, my observation. Too often we settle for a subnormal Christian experience. And then someone comes along and they begin to teach and model normal Christian living. It will initially seem to be abnormal. This isn't abnormal. This is the norm that God intended. This quality of life, this is the life that the death and resurrection of Jesus makes possible, available to every child of God. I was leading a conference in Millington, Tennessee, Josh's hometown over here, our worship leader. After the service on Sunday night, a woman, a member of the church, she went to her pastor and she said, as, as he was describing the Christian life on Sunday morning, she looked at her pastor and she said, was he, was he accurate? Is that really what the Christian life is? And he said, that's absolutely what the Christian life is. She said, I've been a member here for years but I've never experienced anything like this. I'm not sure that I'm saved. And he said, well, we can take care of that. And he led her in a prayer of faith and repentance. And she came the next night to publicly profess Christ. And we had the privilege of seeing her baptized there at the end of the conference. Look on your page there in your workbook. Each of these messages contains a test. Again, it's just an exercise to get us to think, to engage on a little deeper level with these truths. So, on the left-hand side, lives that would be characterized as spiritually dry. On the right-hand side, lives spiritually refreshed. Let's look at our first point of comparison. Those who are spiritually dry are inapproachable and defensive. Those who are spiritually refreshed are approachable and receptive. Notice again her first response to Jesus. Whoa, why are you talking to me? See, we're going to find out in just a moment she's been burned by men all her life, all her adult life, and she doesn't want to get burned again. So the screens are up. Why are you talking to me? But we're going to watch by the end she's very approachable. And let me just say there's someone here this morning that's a little skeptical. I don't know about all these drums and guitars up here and all of these unfamiliar faces. And, you know, Greg, you don't preach like Pastor Rick preaches. We have a little phrase in Texas. We talk about a, how a calf looks at a new gate. Just not sure about all this. I don't know who this verse is for, but it's for someone in the room. Let's read it together out loud. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now, according to that verse right now, where is God? God's near. That's right, God's near. 
Now, that's news to someone in the room because, honestly, you are right now, you are far from God. Oh, I know you're sitting in church. I'm so thankful you're here. You've probably got a Bible in your lap, may even have a notebook taking notes there. You stood a while ago and you sang the song, I'll give it to you. You've got the church thing down. But honesty is important. And there's someone in the room right now, let's just get honest. You're far from God. You're really just putting up with this morning. You're tolerating this morning until you can get to lunch or until you can get to the football game this afternoon. That's really what you're excited about. Now, here's the thing. If you're feeling far from God, it's not because God moved. It's not because God moved. It's because you have spiritually drifted. Here's another promise for you, James 4, 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Again, that's what we're doing in these days. We're simply drawing near to God. Next on our little chart here. Those who are spiritually dry tend to hide their sin. Those who are spiritually refreshed are more uh, uh, open to God. They're willing to acknowledge and to confess their sin. Uh, Look at verse 16 with me. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands and the one you have right now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. All right, pause. In the course of that conversation, hey, go get your husband. I want him to hear this. Oh, sir, I'm not married. Well, technically that's true, but there's another part of the story. You've actually been married and divorced five times. You've finally given up on the institution of marriage and you're just living with some old guy. And I love her response. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. You are a man sent from God who knows my secrets. He knew her secrets. Now, her life reminds me of an old country song. She'd been looking for love in all the wrong places. Let me just hit pause and remind you this morning, church, that God knows your secrets. You've done a good job hiding them from your spouse, perhaps hiding them from your parents. You've hid them from your Sunday school teacher. You've even hidden them from your pastors. God knows your secrets. And those secrets are eating you alive. Read this one with me off the screen. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Now, based on that scripture, I'm going to make this statement. Somebody in the room right now is not prospering. You're not prospering. You right now are drowning in a sea of guilt and shame and self-condemnation. Sadly, unnecessarily. You know why? Because you've been concealing your transgressions. But for those who are willing to confess, to get honest with God, forsake them. God is eager to grant them mercy. Continue to watch the conversation here. Look down to verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now pause. As Jesus begins to press in, as he begins to reveal her secrets, he knows what's going on. Notice what she does. She changes the subject. 
And what does she change it to? Of all things, religion. Now, Jesus, I know that you just came from Jerusalem and you have a temple down there and that's where you and your people worship. Now, and she would have pointed to a mountain nearby and said, see that mountain right there, Gerizim? We've got our temple. That's where we worship up there. As if to say, now, Jesus, you don't need to worry about me. I'm okay. I'm okay. See, just as she believed that her deepest needs could be met in the context of human relationships, if I just found the right person, she also believed that her deepest needs were met through human religion. Not a living, vital relationship with God through his son Jesus, but with human religion. She continues, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now pause. I find this incredibly ironic. She is preaching to Jesus. And what's she preaching about? The coming Messiah. You know, we believe that a Messiah is coming. There's going to be someone who comes and sets it all straight and makes it all right. And the amazing thing, watch. She's standing about two feet from the Messiah. But hear me. She doesn't recognize him. She's not reaching out to him. She's not asking for forgiveness. Look again on your outline. Those who are spiritually dry are not honest about their needs. Those who are spiritually refreshed recognize their need and seek help. See, those who are spiritually dry, they at least give the appearance, I've got it all together. I'm okay. I'm doing just fine. She had bought into the most ancient of all lies. It was first whispered in the Garden of Eden when the enemy convinced Eve and later Adam that they could live without God. You'll be fine. Oh, I know it's disobedience. I know it's defying God's will. But you'll be just fine. And some of you have been living the same lie, convinced that you can do just fine without God's help. Verse 28. So the woman let her, uh, left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see, a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they were coming to him. Uh, they went out of the town and were coming to him. All right, pause again. Let me take you to the final step on our little comparison and contrast. Uh, people who are spiritually dry are reluctant to share about Christ. People who are spiritually refreshed are eager to share about Christ. Now, I find it interesting. What was her first response when she had this encounter with Jesus, this thirst-quenching encounter with Jesus? Her first response was to go tell people. No one had to preach to her about that. No one had to train her in evangelism. There was a natural desire. You've met the deepest needs of my life. I need to share with others what I have discovered in you. Now, People who are spiritually dry, well, let's just say their faith is a very private thing to them. They're not really comfortable talking about God with others or even praying with others. And why? It could be because their faith is so powerless. 
Their faith has had such little impact on their lives. There's probably even an embarrassment factor here. But when we begin to live in the flow of living water, that quality of life that God desires each of his children to experience, when we begin to experience living water lifestyle, that revived life, it's going to show. You're going to be busy answering questions. Why are you different? Why are you responding so differently from others? Now, back to verse 28, last little point here. It seems almost a trivial point, but John points out in verse 28, the woman left her water jar and went away into town. Well, I don't believe there's anything trivial about Scripture. So why would John want us to know that she left her water jar and she went on into the village? I think John was giving us a picture here. See, the water jar that she brought to the well that morning was really a picture of her soul, empty and dry. But now she'd had this thirst-quenching encounter with Christ, and everything was changed. And I think this was John's way of saying she was moving on. She was ready to experience a whole new level of living, that abundant life that Jesus promised. Honesty. You're going to hear us hammer on honesty. See, God is eager to meet you right now at your greatest point of need, but not until you're willing to be honest with yourself, with him, and when needed, honest with others. You say, Greg, that's a picture of my life right now as well. I am spiritually dry. Again, as you look at my little chart here, which side do you more readily identify with? Which side, which column more accurately describes you right now? Some of you are willing to be honest and say, Greg, I'm spiritually dry. As I look at those things, that's probably more accurately reflecting where my life is right now. What do I do? Very simply, you come back. That's why we're here. Together that we might experience times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. You say, well, what about those on the other side? I know they'll be back. Taste and see that the Lord is good. They've tasted. They want more. But on the left, just come back. That's your first yes. That's your first decision. Now, I know for some of you coming back, it's going to mean some challenges, all right? A, A different bedtime schedule for the children. They'll survive. I promise. I've been there. Moving homework around, having to call a coach about having to miss a practice or maybe a game. Uh, For some of you, an adjustment of other priorities maybe won't be there for the kickoff of that Monday night football game or some other event that you're anticipating. So here's my invitation. Just come back, join with us. You know, we're only here because your pastor believes this is what you need as a church right now. 